This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is the former United States Deputy Secretary of the Treasury and a big wig on Wall Street, a really great financial expert, uh, Roger Altman, the chairman of Evercore. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our recent sponsors. Uh, we thank you for supporting these sponsors because it helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You know, James Carver, we see polls, usually multiple polls every day. We're not much surprised by them. Uh, they tend to show the same thing. Every now and then, one just jumps out at you. And I think this past week, the Associated Press University of Chicago survey did that. It showed that voters think, simply, Joe Biden is too old uh, to be president for four more years, and Donald Trump is too corrupt. Uh, if we had the old system where leaders or bosses held sway, that had lots of problems. I'm not advocating going all the way back to that. There's a good chance there would be a serious effort to replace both of them. More and more Democrats, James, I think privately believe Biden is a drag on their entire ticket and has no better than a 50-50 shot of beating Trump if there are other candidates on the ballot. And I think there are it's small, but a growing number of Republicans who think one of their younger candidates could beat Biden easily and that Trump may be a drag on their tickets. I was in South Carolina this week. That's Trump country. Uh, they have two candidates uh, from the Palmetto State running, but Trump still has the most support. Senator Lindsey Graham, Speaker of the House, others. And I had a, I, I went to a big Republican event and a bunch of people said, you know, I think Trump's great. I'm still with him, but, but maybe we ought to think about moving on. Uh, so uh, I see no signs that Biden is going to leave uh, in any way. I think Trump, it's a little bit different. Uh, he is going to trial. The judge set a trial date on March 4th on the most serious uh, offense, January 6th. He's going to appeal that. Uh, she may delay it for a month or two, but she's not going to delay it uh, much beyond that. So he will be—he will have a—he will be tried uh, by late spring. Uh, his efforts to appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals will get nowhere. And the Supreme Court, I think, is going to be very reluctant to take up a scheduling decision by a district judge. I think he will be convicted there, and I, at that point. I think both what it does to him and some of his supporters, there at least is a chance that uh, the Trump uh, support will erode and they may have to turn to someone else. Well, it's been the position of this show, of both hosts, that the only Democrat that Joe, the only Democrat 
that Trump could be would be Joe Biden. I'm talking about it. Of course, if he did something crazy, but in a normal forward thing. And the only Republican that Biden could be is Donald Trump. I, don't get me started on where these people say, well, we don't have Biden, we don't have anything else. So he's the only Democrat can be Trump. I think there was some truth to that in 2020. It's not, it, by the way, 69, was it 77% of of people, the whole electorate don't want him to run for election. 69% of Democrats don't want him. Right. Now, this poll is not an outlier. We've had three or four, maybe more polls that show essentially the same thing. But for some reason, and I, I don't know, I don't think anyone else does, this one hit particularly hard. And I think there's going to, of course, there's going to be a spate of polls that are come, come out after Labor Day that's generally the kind of thought process for public polls. I wouldn't be surprised if you see the uh, Wall Street Journal poll come out and maybe some other ones. And of course, they're going to show the same thing, if not worse. And then people are going to get even more nervous. But I got to tell you, the reaction to this poll has been three times the reaction to the last four or five polls that showed exactly the same thing. Absolutely. I, I, I I can't tell you why. I think people were saying, well, he's got a chance. You know, he's talking about his economic message. Things are kind of going, the economy is going the right direction. I was talking about that with Roger. But it, it, people are getting, it, it would, you know, 77% of the people, you know, we talk about saving democracy. And when you do something that 77% of the people and 69% of the people in your own party don't want you to do, you, you're, you're in some very, very, very you know, slippery slope. And I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Well, you're right. And I think Democrats up until the last couple months rationalized, okay, um, he can beat Trump. Trump's going to be the nominee and Trump's going to have a lot of baggage. And I think they're beginning to say, hey, even with all that, given Biden's weaknesses, we're not sure. But when you add the potential of Cornell West or some other flake uh, third-party yeah, candidate, much less no labels, that changes the dynamics. And I think <laughs> that you, and when you, you know, I, I, I ran into Charlie Cook, who I think is one of the wisest people I've ever known in politics. And someone said, what are the odds that Biden will be reelected? Charlie frowned and said, I hate to think about the question, but I think it's, you know, at best 50-50. That's, that really is between right. James Carville and Charlie Cook. I am scared, you know whatless. Well, so if the election would be held in November, I know it's not, it's going to be held a year from November, but in the candidates of Donald Trump, the Republican, Joe Biden, Democrat, Cornell West, the Green Party, uh, Joe Manchin, Larry Hogan, the, no, whatever, no labels. Trump would be a slight favorite in the batting market. He would market. be. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. That's not, you could, somebody come as well, exaggerating to be even money. I don't know. But all I'm telling you is when Trump goes to trial on March the 4th, 2024, the, the United States started living under the Constitution, remember this, on March 4th, 1789. If Trump is reelected, this is the end of the freaking Constitution. Are you really going to take this risk? Are you really, is, it, is this, are you going to do something? that 69% of the people in your own party don't want you to do. you got to think about this. It's, it, 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 one thing to say is totally correct. His record is spectacular. He, by any measure, 
He deserves re-election by economic performance, by foreign policy performance, the most ethical administration I can remember. So, you know, one of the most talented cabinets I've seen, and, and included Clinton and Obama in there. Certainly, by every metric that you judge somebody for re-election, he passes for fine colors, except for one. But, you know, that's other than that, Ms. Lincoln, how was the play? Absolutely. James, two bits of good news. One that just came in, that a federal judge has found that Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, defamed those Georgia election workers and ordered sanctions against him. Uh, <clears throat> Rudy's going to be in bankruptcy court pretty soon if uh, Donald Trump doesn't bail him out. Couldn't happen to a more deserving guy. Second thing, I'll give you one bit of good news for Democrats and Biden. And that is that the administration has put 10 uh, uh, drugs, very expensive oh, drugs, uh, that uh, Medicare will start negotiating the price. It won't be till 2026, but it's a big deal. And Republicans, uh, probably many of whom are on big pharma's payroll, Republican strategists, say, let's fight this. I want to tell you, if I am the White House or I'm Chuck Schumer or, or Akeem Jeffries, bring it on. Fight us on this issue. Uh, there are very few issues that are better, that are bigger winners for Democrats than lowering expensive drug prices. So, so, so this is my question. I'm, I'm confess my ignorance on this subject. So if, if I go, in, my, my, my insurance covers almost all of it, whatever. Does, Medi, does Medicare buy these drugs cheaper or does it translate to the actual person buying the drug? Well, no, it translates because Medicare, it's what Medicare will pay. And so, therefore, if I'm paying $250 uh, right. a, a month, it's probably more than that for Eliquis. Okay. Let, all right. Let's say you're paying $300 a month right, right. now. And you're on Medicare. Or you're not. You're just a guy. You're on I'm Eliquis. on Medicare. Okay. You're on Medicare. Okay. How does that translate? They negotiate uh, a price and say, I'm sorry, we're only going to pay $200 a month for this. Okay. Medicare is the biggest customer. Uh, they, can, they can't just say, screw you, because they lose a right. lot of business. Uh, uh, so uh, that translates into me paying lower drug prices. But if, okay, I, 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 we'll talk about it on the phone. But if Medicare pays 200 or 300 and I get the drug, where do I see the benefit? Because Medicare is saying, you know, right now, Eliquist, I, I, I don't know, I, I forget. Okay. But yeah, they you, charge what, what, you, let's say, $300 a month. Uh, you know, for us, a month's supply right, of right. Eliquis. And Medicare says, I'm so, and, and Medicare pays that, or pays, right. you know, 90%. Right. Of it. Okay. Medicare right. says, I'm sorry, that's just too much. We're going to negotiate. We have negotiating power because we're a big customer. Right. And we're going to take it down to 200, which means that's what they have to charge me. Uh, but, okay, I don't want to belabor this. If, if Medicare pays 290 or 190, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't know, I don't see the, of course it saves Medicare money. Of course these drug companies abandoned. Of course it's 100% the right thing to do. But I, I don't see, being, somebody will explain it to me, but, but how it puts money in the average guy's pocket. Because I pay less. I pay less than for that drug. Because I'm covered by Medicare and Medicare says I'm only going to cover X. And, um, all right, let's move on. All right, all right. Well, no, you know, I know, I understand. It's a good subject, James. You're right. It's a good subject and it's not easy. Let's get somebody on in the next couple of weeks. Right, right. They can explain it. That's all. I agree. I I, I think it's great. I think it's stunning. I think it's an achievement of the first order. I I, I just want somebody to explain to me how much 
is a I'm all for that. How much that our, a guy of yeah. 72 year old say? That's all. No, right. well, no, we'll get somebody on. We'll do that. All right, great. Yeah. All right, James, uh, we have uh, a, a high-level guest, uh, to put it mildly. Roger Altman, former Deputy Treasury Secretary, Chairman and Founder of Evercore, uh, you know, a really big influential Wall Street firm and knows more about uh, political economics than anybody I know. Uh, Roger, several weeks ago, you told me, noting what, 13.4 million jobs have been added, wages are rising, manufacturing coming back, inflation is subsiding, and you said you couldn't design a better set of data for Joe Biden. So what are the prospects this data will look like this a year from now? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. I love you both. Um, <clears throat> of course, that's very hard to answer because a year is a long time. Uh, and and, and the context here goes like this. Uh, <clears throat> a year ago, if someone had said, what are the chances that the economic data right now, a year later, would be as, it, as they are now, most people would have said rather low because we would have been quite late in the economic recovery cycle Right now, we're three years in since the recovery began uh, in the second half of 2020, and people would not have expected the data to be as good as it is now. So asking how it'll be a year from now, uh, the odds are high it won't be as good uh, because we'll be four years into the economic recovery cycle, and these cycles uh, tend to weaken as they go on. Uh, so that'd be number one point. I think the huge question with tremendous political implications is whether or not there will be a recession in 2024, whether that's a year from now or six months earlier. Uh, and uh, three months ago or two months ago, a lot of experts would have said yes or probably to that question of a recession. But since the data, since then, the data has come in so strongly on growth, especially on growth, uh, but also on inflation, improving inflation, and on continued job creation, and on real wage improvement, that the current view, as compared to two or three months ago, is that a recession is unlikely. So if you just take the majority viewpoint, the answer to your question is, a year from now, the data will not be as good, but, but it won't be so bad as to constitute recession. But the real answer to your question, apart from that, is that nobody really knows a year from now. Well, Roger, you're as smart as anybody, and you've pointed out that nobody really knows. But, what, but would, would you agree the probabilities, and that's what we're dealing with, are probabilities. The probabilities are that there will not be uh, a recession that is the majority view at the moment, Albert. Um, my own two cents is that it's a little too soon 
to reach that conclusion in a black and white sense. Um, and the reason it's a little too soon is that experts in monetary policy, if they were on this call with us today, might say, look, guys, monetary policy operates with a very long lag, as much as 18 months, before it, man before it shows up in terms of its impacts on the real economy. The Fed began this tightening cycle, the Federal Reserve began this tightening cycle in the spring of 22. 18 months hasn't yet passed. It's still possible that these lag effects end up causing a recession. But that is definitely the minority view right now. So I would say the odds on a recession have diminished. Maybe they're 20% but they're not zero. Roger, you, a lot may depend on what that what the Federal Reserve does. Uh, you know, they control monetary policy. Jay Powell recently spoke at uh, that uh, annual uh, Jackson meeting. Uh, what, do, do you think he's through, uh, he's finished right now raising rates? I'd have to say 50-50 because it depends, as he himself said last week at that meeting, on the, the data that develops from here. So um, if the inflation data trends favorably, in other words, it's moving lower, he may be finished. But if the data on inflation is more mixed, maybe inflation plateaus, for example, rather than continuing to decline, or the data on the underlying economic growth turns out to be stronger than expected, which would imply eventual complexities on inflation, uh, then the Fed may hike further. Um, most people think the Fed will hike again uh, one more time in 2024 uh, so that it's not finished. But Powell himself last week Made, made it clear as he could that the answer to that question depends on, on, on how the inflation data comes in in the next month, two or three. Uh, and we just don't know the answer to that question. You know, Roger, if there is a recession next year, Powell will become uh, a, a culprit, a villain, uh, fairly or not to most Democrats. They already are attacking him and they'll say you underestimated inflation, then you had to overreact and now you've produced a recession. If on the other hand, there is the so-called soft landing where we don't have a recession, inflation subsides, man, Jay Powell's going to look awful good. Yeah, he'll look like uh, the monetary equivalent of a magician. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> because uh, you're right, the Fed, and by its own admission, misjudged the persistence of inflation. Uh, initially thought it was, to pick the famous term, transitory. Then realized it wasn't. It was more deep-seated and then rushed to catch up to fight it, which resulted in the fastest cycle of monetary tightening in 40 years. Uh, so if he does that, tightens that quickly, 
uh, and that and and that much, and still avoids a recession, it'll be one step short of miraculous. But at the moment, uh, the chances for that miraculous outcome seem pretty good. As I said, maybe they're eighty twenty. Um, but you're quite right in your assessment. If if he pulls that off, it's it's remarkable. And if we, on the other hand, end up with a recession, uh, he's going to be um, he's going to be vilified in many quarters. Yeah, for me, there's, there's no getting around the fact. There's no getting around the fact that the Fed blew it in the early going, and they've admitted that. Mm-hmm. It, for me, it's a little bit. It, it's different, uh, but it's also a little bit of deja vu of Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker in 1982 was one of the most unpopular people. Uh, in in America, particularly among Republicans, but among everybody, Tip O'Neill's or Ronald Reagan. By 1984, with the economy morning in America, Paul Volcker was a great, and history has been incredibly kind to Paul Volcker. Jay Powell should wish for half as good. Agree. Um, uh, but the problem that Volcker faced, in fairness, was much bigger. Right. Inflation. Than the one that Powell has faced. Volcker faced double-digit inflation. Um, and With high and, unemployment. Yes, and a period of double-digit inflation and high unemployment called stagflation by many, which had persisted for quite a while before Volcker was parachuted into the Federal Reserve. So he not only faced uh, a, a more difficult problem just in terms of headline inflation, but it had persisted for a lo- quite a bit longer. And therefore, both because of the level of inflation and the length over which it had pers- persisted, his job was vastly harder than the one Powell has, even though Powell's is not easy. Right. I mean, Volcker, in my view, deserves the uh, demigod status that he now has posthumously. And I hope when the historical reviews come in uh, on Jimmy Carter, they will point out that it was Jimmy Carter who appointed Paul Volcker, uh, which was a pretty gutsy uh, appointment, even if he didn't expect him to be as tough as he was. Let me turn it over to John Maynard Carville. Yeah. Well, thank you. You can ask a few questions here. Uh, so, so, Roger, I follow the, the business press. You know, but I get up, I read the Times business section, did scan the journal, uh, Bloomberg Business Week. I follow a site called Calculated Risk. I started following them during the housing crisis, and I, I finally got a lot of good links. But uh, the Times and Journal, particularly Business Week, are just relentlessly negative. And it, it's almost like when there these these good numbers come in, these financial journalists actually get mad about it. it, 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 it I'm misreading this, but. It, they keep insisting it's going to go to hell in a handbasket, and it doesn't. Well, the the jobs number was good, but that just means that they're going to raise interest rates. The, I think, I think ever, you're right. I think there's a lot of that. But you guys know a lot more about the press than I do. Well, this is, I know the, the political press, and 80% of it ain't worth a shit. And I don't know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not good enough to know the financial press, but maybe it's the same. I don't know, but I, I just, I know that the financial, the reporting doesn't comport with the reality of the numbers I'm getting out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics or, you know, the, C- the CPI index. That, that, there's a disconnect. Well, you know, uh, I, 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 I agree with you. 
Um, and I'm, I'm just no expert on the press. I, right. I, I suppose it's another case of bad news sells and good news doesn't. But um, I normally wouldn't point to this, but over the past two months, as you well know, maybe two and a half months, uh, the Biden administration has adopted this term Bidenomics. And they're doing a Bill Clinton-like job of hammering at it uh, uh, relentlessly. And a lot of the uh, stuff they put out is just the data. And um, while they have their own obvious self-interest in doing that, and we're approaching a re-election cycle, the data doesn't lie. Because uh, they're not using their own data. They're using the obvious Bureau of Labor Statistics or other related reliable data. And the data is just very good. And most basically, you know, the most recent quarter that was reported, 2.4% growth in the United States, real growth. The current quarter, we're obviously uh, approaching the beginning of September. Um, so about two months of the quarter behind us. Uh, is running around 3%, although that could change between now and the end of the quarter. And that is just remarkable this late in this recovery cycle. I mean, it's remarkable. So uh, I, I really can't provide some intelligent insight as to why the press reports it the way they do. But the reality is the data is really good. And um, it'll be interesting to see because right now Biden's approval ratings on the economy are not very good, whether the continuation of this good data, if it does continue, will, will change Americans' perception of the economy and the way the president's handled it or not. But right. uh, whatever the press says or doesn't say, the data is pretty darn good. Right. I, I don't think the, the public you know, reads Business Week that much, all right, to be honest with you. But if you do a focus group and it's almost 100% and you show Biden saying Bidenomics is working, the economy is strong as it can possibly be, and the reaction of people almost universally is, what world does that guy live in? All right? Is he, is he looked at the price of gas or whatever? And I'm, I'm just reporting. Of course, the data is what the data is. If you would have told me we were seeing these economic numbers a year ago, I would have said the president's economic approval rate would be 54%. It's 34%. But I, I got to tell you, from out there, for some reason, there's this massive resistance from the public to believe this. And I, and I don't have a very good idea how it would change if I were them. But in, you know, they say Bidenomics, and people say, well, the guy's got a you know, I don't know, 41% approval rating while you're putting your name on it, you know, as opposed to common sense. I, I don't know. It's, it's an enormously vexing problem. That's all. Well, let's, why don't we talk about that a minute? Yeah, okay, good. Now, some people that I respect, and these right. are econo ec economists types, say the following. Let's see what you think of it, James. They say, yes, we came through a period of high inflation. Right. And... During that period, real wages, meaning, meaning month after month wages after deducting inflation, were going down. 
because inflation was so high. Now that we've turned a corner in the last roughly three months, and real wages are going up because the rate of wage gain is now outpacing the rate of inflation. Inflation haven't fallen. Although, by the way, it's, it's marginally positive. It's not positive by a lot. And therefore, these people say, people's memories are long. They're not following the data month after month. They're still under the, uh, they still see and feel that inflation is high. And maybe, uh, and they say, retail gasoline prices have a dis, an, uh, a uh, outsized effect on people's perceptions of inflation. And in the last month or so, gas prices have gone up again. Right. So therefore, uh, in the, you know, in the popular mentality, so to speak, voters and other Americans still think that inflation is running very high. Right. That's the explanation I keep hearing. It, and if they gave me that explanation, I would say you're undoubtedly, every fact that you've given me is undoubtedly true. And we saw this, and the hardest thing to do in all of politics for any incumbent is when can you take credit for an improving economy? We obviously got to blame in 94. We got to credit in 96. Obama obviously got to blame in 2010. Got to credit in 2012. So the Biden people say, well, look, Look at this. What my great worry is, suppose it doesn't change. All right? And then the gas prices are up. I, I, from everything that I read or talk to you or other people or even energy people, they don't think the government has a lot to do with, with the price of gas. It does not. All right. That, but, but that, I, I, I think the, the, the all patch would agree with that. All right? They, they try to get shit and, you know, they try to pollute and tell you it's going to say, but if you talk to these guys over dinner, they'll say that. But but the danger is, if it doesn't kick in, it, it, you know, it's catastrophic, and it it has not. Now, I, but they're, what their argument? You, no one, I can't argue if, if 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 that's what they're saying. You can't argue with that. That that's all factual. But it's hard. The public <coughs> just ain't. Well, let me ask you this question. Go ahead. Um, it is um, 14 months in round numbers until the election. Now, coming back to Albert's first question, if the economic data remains good, generally good, between now and election day, a layman like me, meaning not a politician or a political consultant or somebody smart, a layman would say, well, 14 months of good data and public attitudes toward whether things are good or bad will change. Like you were saying, in terms of Obama and Ronald Reagan and so forth. But what I don't know, and here's my question, is what is the point of no return? Meaning that uh, if voters still think economic conditions aren't very good, by April or May of 2024, is it then too late for them to change their minds by November? Or how does that work? Uh, you know, Roger, it's like, you know, people ask you, and they always do not hear them, and they ask you, why do you think the stock market is going? And you say, for God knows, don't 
don't ask me to predict this stuff. I give advice to business, and I, I take a look at what I think the current conditions are or what I think is sound policy, and I go with that. Now, you know, they, predictions are, are hard, especially about the future, as, as Rio Guevara famously said. If Biden, you know, just be straight up honest here. If Biden was 62, I would be, I would take that bet. I, I just, what, 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 I, what I greatly fear is that people don't see past his age, the, the, let's call the Hawaii trip unimpressive and leave it at that, all right? And I, and, and I, I don't know the answer to it. No one else knows it. That's well, the Laura, let me then, then let me let me take your very good point and uh, make a statement that sure go ahead is theoretical but that's uh, all right if it were an average president not Joe Biden at eighty right. years old eighty plus right. and you were really going to have fourteen months of good data and that's a hypothesis we don't know that's but that. if we were it would be unprecedented for public attitudes by by November 2024 not to turn more favorable on the economy than they are now. I, I, but, I somewhat agree. But there are two intervening factors. One is Biden's age and general perceptions of Biden. And the other is just because it's unprecedented doesn't mean it won't happen. You know, we all see those rules broken all the time. So I don't know either. Um, I, don't either. I just know that if I, you know, I worked in, two different administrations, right. Carter and Clinton. And if in those administrations, if you had had economic data like you have now and the prospect of them, them continuing, you would have been smiling. I, I, I would have. And, and, you know, I guess what I feel is this. If God would have been, I'd have been devastated, everything else. But if it had been Bob Doe and not Clinton in 96, I would have said it's the end of the republic. All right, I was voted for Obama. I, I donated. I, I, I actually did some surrogate stuff for him. If it would have been Mitt Romney, I would have not said this is the end of the republic. I said I wouldn't like the policy that come out of there. I, I would, you know, treat working people like shit or whatever. Uh, most people wrongly believed, staggeringly wrongly. Well, Bush Gore. I, I voted for Gore, but you know, Bush has got adults, and they bring it in Condi and. You know, Colin Powell and Dick Cheney's experience, and uh, you know, Paul O'Neill is a CEO. Of course, it was a catastrophic administration, but I, I won't revisit that. But if we're wrong, you know, this is like going to get a, you know, to pull a tooth and it goes the wrong way. Well, okay, we can, we'll fix it and you know, give you some Novocaine and come back. But do a heart catheterization, it goes the wrong way. It's catastrophic, and that that's. Where I and I don't disagree with anything they say, but the odds that their their view of events does not pan out, the consequences, to my mind, are catastrophic. And I think that that that's how. Yeah, I think we all agree on that, Roger. Let me just weigh in on two points. On the first of all, I, I, I have no idea why they are selling Bidenomics. I mean, I'm you know, I'm sorry. It, it it doesn't resonate the way Morning in America did. It really just doesn't. I think just as a marketing device, that's you know, it leaves much to be desired. Secondly, he doesn't do it very well, uh, and I'm afraid that that affects uh, that can sometimes overshadow an enormously impressive 
record uh, and data. And um, I don't think that's going to change. Uh, at best, if you're right and the data is as good, almost as good, and we don't have a uh, recession next year, I think marginally the economy might be a plus for Biden. No better. Well, Albert, I, I'm not. I'm just not smart enough to know whether their decision to tout the term, the actual word, Bidenomics, is a good or bad decision. I, I don't know. That's I'm, a, I'm out of my depth there. Um, they're right, however, to stress and restress the uh, strength of the economy. And so the question really is... And the projects that are going to be uh, uh, done yeah. on, on climate. So the question really is uh, twofold. One, are they, are they conveying that persuasively or not? Right. And the other question is the one James raised, which is really above all else, which is do public perceptions of President Biden, in particular his age, just overshadow all this to the point where it doesn't make much difference. Yeah. Um, and I don't, again, <laughs> I defer to you guys. Uh, Roger, let me bring up a new subject. China faces the most significant economic challenges probably in decades. What impact does a Chinese slowdown have on uh, the United States? Very limited because we don't export very much at all to China. Um, that's a whole different story, but we don't. And so if Chinese, if our exports to China weaken, it has, it's just too small to have us really make a dent in the U.S. economy. But if you, if you widen out the lens, what seems to be going on in China is fascinating and very important in a geopolitical sense, not an economic sense. By the way, it's economically very important for other parts of the world. Uh, but just not particularly for, yeah, especially Asia, of course. But not, not especially for the United States. But geopolitically, I mean, the narrative on China has just changed from the North Pole to the South Pole in the past six to 12 months. For several years, many years actually, until recently, recently meaning the last 12 months, the perception was the Chinese economy is growing relentlessly at high rates. It will continue to do so. The Chinese economy, measured correctly, is going to surpass the U.S. economy in sheer size. And China is going to dominate the world economically. Now, that narrative has changed and has changed uh, sharply. And the current narrative is China's facing tremendous demographic and economic problems. The Chinese golden era, economically speaking, is, is uh, over. China's not going to surpass the United States in terms of sheer size of, the, of its economy. And um, while China's really at so many different levels, deeply challenged. I must say the, the data on demography, on so many different aspects of the Chinese economy does seem to support this new narrative. Um, 
And I would point out a good piece in the current issue of Foreign Affairs magazine by Adam Posen about this. Uh, but um, the answer to your question is not much impact on the U.S. economy. In fact, negligible, but very, very dramatic impacts geopolitically and on Asia. Yeah. Uh, R- Roger, you can't, uh, you know, we, you, you can't say, and you know more than almost anyone I know, what the economy is going to look like a year from now. Um, and so you certainly can't answer with any spe- specificity the question of if Biden is reelected. And I agree with James, that's an existential question uh, for voters like we haven't faced probably since the civil, since uh, 1860, perhaps. Um, you, you assume there'll be a new economic team, correct? I mean, because there usually is. Uh, and it's kind of hard to think what the economic agenda would be for a second Biden administration. Well, um, yes and no. And here's the answer. Here's the sense of, of no. The combination of the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill set up about a trillion dollars, and that's a very rough number, but it's in the right direction, of long-term investment. Not, you know, a stimulus program where you send people checks for a year to get through a recession. Long-term investment. And the task of actually investing the money is enormous. And that is a many years task. I mean, everybody knows I'll quote President Obama, who after oh, after learning the hard way said, there's no such thing as a shovel-ready project, unquote. And what he meant was, you can talk about putting, putting shovels into the ground the day after you sign the bill, but that's uh, uh, f- fanciful thinking. It takes a year or two before you can really get these projects started, really started, repairing the bridge, repairing the tunnel, et cetera. So... The job of putting that money out effectively is three years, five years, seven years, uh, but it's not a year and a half. So if Biden gets a second term, one of their real preoccupations, unavoidably, will be most of that money will not have been spent yet, and they have to do it effectively. Uh, I mean, if you think about, for example, uh, the Commerce Department and Gina Raimondo, who I think is superb. They haven't spent a dime yet under the Chips and Science Act. Um, They've made a few commitments, but but not the big commitments. And most of that money is going to be spent in a second Biden term or another president's term, not Gina Raimondo and Joe Joe Biden's term. Anyway, uh, I agree with you that there'll have to be a different set of uh, 2025, 26, 27 economic policies. But I think... A lot of the work they're going to do day in, day out, if he gets a second term, is going to be what I just said. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so, Roger, you're very upfront. You're not a stock picker. You're not really an economic forecast. But what you are probably regarded as the number one corporate consultant in the United States. And this is my question. How much does climate 
play into corporate strategy going forward? When you talked about your impressive list of clients and, you know, when they're preparing things, and I'm not just talking about the insurance market or the reinsurance market or, or anything like that, but just across the board, how big a factor is climate in corporate planning? Well, of course it varies by industry and company, but I'd say the answer is a, a big factor. So um, let's take an example which might not occur quickly to most people, which is Walmart. Walmart, of course, one of the biggest companies in the world, the single biggest retailer in the world, uh, and a, a, a remarkable company at so many levels. Very important company to everyday Americans. Walmart has, has, to its credit, over the last, gosh, 10 years, maybe more, uh, really focused on reducing its carbon footprint in terms of the packaging of products it sells, the delivery systems, and the related vehicles and so forth, and so much across the company. And they've done that, I think, Number one, because they believe it's the right thing to do. But secondly, they think it's good business. And Walmart, in my opinion, this is just me, has gone from being seen five years ago, eight years ago, as a bit of a predatory company to being seen as a leader. Uh, now, getting back to your question, um, there are a whole series of industries that are directly impacted, starting with the automobile business for obvious reasons. But, you know, let's take steel. Uh, right now, there's a tremendous focus on making steel making more uh, environmentally uh, uh, acceptable, better from an environmental and conservation and carbon footprint point of view. Um, and that's in large part because the customers of steel want that. And the countries in which those customers reside, they're not all American, want that. So I would say, generally speaking, the impact is big. Now, look, there are some companies who feel it's not their job to contribute to reduce carbon emissions. I know a few of those companies. But by and large, most do, and they're and they're they're feeling some pressure from their shareholders to that effect. They're feeling some pressure from their customers, and they get up in the morning and look in the mirror and they say, "What what do we feel it's right to do?" So my answer is a lot. Well, I'm a, a, a busy person, but what the, the question I think that you feel say. The question that, yeah, I said irritates me, but it, I, I don't like is how are the Democrats going to do in November? The question I prefer is what do you think the Democrats should do between now and November to have a better chance? Okay. And I think if I look at a guy like you, is, you know, the, the better question to ask Roger Altman is not where you think it's going to be. What, what would you do to make it be in a better place? And, that, that that's a, a different question, and and uh, I, I really thank you for coming on the show. You're one of our favorite guests. Uh, 
your wisdom is, is, is very much appreciated. Uh, and you, you just have seen so much in your life from government policy to corporate policy to fiscal policy to monetary policy to God knows what. And we're, we're so privileged to be able to take avail. Well, well thank you. Thank but you. I, I have to add one other thought in, in response to your question. Um, I must say it was discouraging to see all of the Republican candidates for president, save Donald Trump, who wasn't there, on the stage last week at the first Republican presidential debate, raised their hands when asked oh. if they thought climate, if they thought, uh, I'm sorry, I guess they, the question was, do you think human activity contributes to climate change? And they all said no. And that was a pretty depressing moment because I don't think a single one of them believes it. Um, but that's just the, the political moment we're in. That was discouraging. You know, Ratchet, that's a, that's a, um, a change, too. Re uh, Republicans used to be not majority, but there was a sizable minority who were really good on environmental issues, and they worked with Democrats on environmental issues. Uh, and that's just changed tremendously over the last 10 years. And as you say, it's really unfortunate. I want to second James Carboy. And in one of his rare cases of understatement, uh, you are even more you are even more valuable uh, and you are even a better guest. And boy, did we learn a lot in the last 25 or 30 minutes. So thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure, you guys. Uh, Again, uh, you know, uh, very few people respect you more than me because it would be hard to do so. So thanks for having me. All right, now for the outrage of the week. Um, James, this is, this is really unbelievable. There are a number of Georgia right-wing Republican legislators who are trying to oust Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney. It's not going to succeed, I think, but what's their rationale? Well, there's really kind of two, if you look at it carefully. First, you can't ignore the fact she's black. Secondly, she had the audacity to indict Donald Trump and 18 of his allies who tried to overturn a very legitimate, credible election in which Biden defeated uh, Donald Trump in the state of Georgia. Uh, the hold that, that Trump still has on these really lawless Republicans is remarkable. You know, 50 years of journalism, over 50 years, I have almost never used the term fascist because I think it's just an explosive term. But when you look up the dictionary, it's something where they focus a lot uh, on race, uh, suppression, and the idea of really suppressing any opposition uh, for whatever the reason. Uh, I think these yahoos qualify. Uh, and as I say, they're not going to succeed. But the mere fact and I would, of course, add Jim Jordan, uh, the House Judiciary Committee, who's also trying to investigate the Fulton County DA. What the hell is the House Oversight Committee, with all the questions involving the federal government, some legitimate, some maybe not, what the hell are they doing investigating Fulton County? There's one reason, because they are wholly owned subsidiaries of Donald J. Trump, and it is an outrage. Well, I don't know if this is an outrage, but people talk about 
continual learning and you know i'll be i'll be 79 in october and the impact of child care in the united states and particularly women is, is profound beyond belief and i want to refer our listeners to a column by kathleen rampell Catherine Rampell. One of the best. Who's a, a, one of the best. And there's a, a was a $24 billion subsidy for child care that's going to expire in the president, who I'm a great admirer of, everybody knows that, did not put it in his budget request. So my own personal story, my daughter is a graduate student at LSU. If, if you are anywhere around a university and you can get your child in university-run child care. I don't care where it is. It could be at Harvard or it could be at southern Mississippi, all right? The, the, the people, the, it's affordable. The people that are there are, are people that, that teach child, early childhood development, the people that take care of children or students. It's staggeringly diverse and, and not just in a black-white diversity, but but clearly uh, Colombian, Iranian, Indonesian, Korean, Nigerian, you name it, diversity, which is where it is. It's really affordable. They hide them on campus where they're hard to find. You have to have two codes to even get in there. Every child's bed or, or whatever they own is on rollers, so if they have to, they can get them out of there. That in, yeah, if you, James Carville, you can make a call and get your grandson in LSU daycare. Great. Not many fucking people can do that. And, and they talk about labor shortages and they talk about childhood development. The, the, one of the best proposals I have ever seen was Elizabeth Warren. I totally agree with her. There should be federally supervised, funded standardized daycare because my, my daughter, you know, yeah, they, they could have gone and, and gotten in the, you know, the high-end church one thing. They could have got, gotten in the, 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 the synagogue daycare. You know, you pay shit. Like you, you're going to an exclusive hospital to get in that high, really good, really good daycare. And I'm telling you, I, I think, the administration has made a mistake. I think daycare is an essential societal issue. I think it's an essential economic issue. And I really never thought about it until I had a grandchild. And my daughter was like, Daddy, and she never asked me for, she's very independent-minded, her husband audit, the kind of adamant that we don't pay for anything. You know, she said, Daddy, you, you got to get Liam in, in, in well, James, let me tell you, as a five-year veteran of being a grandchild, one of the best things that has happened to me economically is Kai this week started kindergarten, public school kindergarten in Montgomery County, because I made a deal with my daughter, as you are probably in the process of making, and I'll, I'll pay for child care. Uh, <clears throat> I'm glad I made that deal. It was good for her, it was good for Kai, and it was good for me. But I want to tell you, it did not help my bank account. It was so damn expensive. And we can afford it. But there are a lot of people who can't. So I could not agree with you and Catherine Rampell more. Absolutely. Well, for, for, for you know, because of circumstances, I didn't have to pay. It, but, you know, she's a graduate student. You know, her husband is, you know, GS-13 equivalent in the federal government. You could get in at university, you know, 
because these, these universities have to have it because if they don't, they can't recruit. How are you going to get this? Well, you better hope they stay there for another five years because otherwise. Well, I, no, they, you know what? They, they were talking about moving to New yeah. Orleans. I think they, I, they did not are saying, you know, Daddy, I think we're just going to stay yeah. in Baton Rouge because of daycare. Okay. I mean, that's how big of a fact it All is. All right, I want everybody out there to read the Catherine Rampell uh, column. She mm. is among the best and James is right. Now for always a highlight, our listener questions. Rick in Shoreham, New York says, James, Trump's rhetoric, behavior, and ability to play the media like a violin has changed the game. Ann Kohler, a right-wing commentator in a New York Times opinion piece, said the only thing keeping him afloat is the mainstream media's inability to refrain from showering him with attention. I agree with her, uh, Rick says. Media coverage is his oxygen. Is there any way to stop it and suffocate the beast? You know, I, I, again, you're the, the expert. You spent, you know, a lot of time in the national media as much as anyone. Your wife, your, your, your journalism is the passion of your family. I don't know how you don't cover it. I, I understand what people are saying. Maybe there's, you know, they fact check in real time. I don't know how you can have any more. They chronicle the number of lies. In the right, they didn't. The 2016 coverage, particularly by the New York Times, was utterly abysmal. It wasn't abysmal. It was criminal. All right, let's just call it what it was. But, I, you know, since then, they, they devoted time to it. People know they know who Trump is. And there's some people from complicated reasons, maybe we should get Ron Brownstein on, I think it's worth, you know, somebody that, that follows this to maybe explore why. But I, I clearly blame the media. Maybe, I mean, overwhelmingly blame the media for 2016. After that, much less so. Well, I, I, you know, I want to say cover him. You got to cover him. Cover him when he's news, but don't cover him on his terms. And I already see cable news falling in uh, to that trap. You know, when he makes an absurd charge uh, against a judge or a prosecutor for the fifth time, I'm sorry, you don't have to put that on the air. It's not news, uh, and you don't have to go and cover every time he goes to be um, either uh, arraigned or taken in. You have to cover it like O.J. Simpson. But unfortunately, I, I think they're playing too much to that. Hopefully they'll cut back. I guess. I, 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 I don't know. The indicted former president attacking. You, a, a, you definitely cover it. No one is I, I, arguing you don't cover that. Right. The question I, I, is, is it wall-to-wall -wall coverage? Right. Uh, and right. that's I, on his terms, and that's I, unnecessary. But I, anyway. I'm 90% blamed. Yeah, We're not going to change it. Blame, blame it right. Jeff in New Next Albany, one. Ohio, says Vivek huh? Ramaswamy may be batshit crazy, but he's a very glib liar. Uh, and Jeff wants to know, uh, he, he, Jeff thinks he's not Caucasian enough. And he's a Hindu. That would preclude him from getting the nomination. You know, what do you think? I think Vivek Ramaswamy is Herman Cain, 2023. Uh, he is, he is glib. He I thought in that debate he got what the way you take over debates. He did that rather effectively. There ain't much there. Uh, some of the stuff he said is not any crazy. It is, as you say, Jeff, batshit crazy. 
Uh, and I think it's going to, I think that and his story is going to catch up with him. And I think he's going to be a, a, a summer of 2023 phenom. And we won't hear much from him after that. Yeah, I, I, my, my sense is uh, it seems like his company is that there are a lot of sort of questions about it. I'm not telling you that he's some reincarnation of Elizabeth Holmes. I'm not suggesting that. But Herman Cain was just kind of goofy. But he did run a company. And, you know, there's 999. I, I don't think he was a bad guy. But I, I think there's some chance that Vivek is really a bad guy. All right? I mean, Michelle Bachman, all right. Kind of crazy, but not bad. I don't think, but you're not a. I agree. Not a bad person. I, 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 I don't want to declare Vivek Ramaswamy a, a bad human being, but I'm open to evidence. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, uh, I you know, I totally agree. By the way, uh, y- y- you know who's responsible for Herman Cain's death? John Donald Trump J. Trump. Trump. In Tulsa, yeah, absolutely Oklahoma. got him to go to this in the summer of and right. he got he right. contracted COVID and almost killed almost killed Chris Christie. Yeah. I mean, way. he's almost killed him. He was Chris Christie was saying goodbye to his wife in ICU. He couldn't see her. And I'll tell you who <laughs> went my, my if Trump gets the nomination, my it's not dark horse anymore. My one of my two or three picks for his running mate was at that Tulsa uh, COVID spreading convention, Elise Stefanik of New York. You know, really, uh, you know, one of the most opportunistic politicians in a very bad way I've ever known. Jim in Charleston, South Carolina, James. I just got back from, what, two days, three days in Charleston. It's always an incredible place. But I went to that African-American museum, and I got to tell you, we we had to leave. So I can only stay for about two and a half hours. Judy and I are going to go back because it is is just remarkable. It is where 40% of the slaves arrived. And it is so moving, you get, you really get emotional. But Jim's question is to you, uh, in which you have discussed in several different ways how the middle class has been forgotten and left behind. He thinks a lot of that is due to the shift of the Democratic Party's loyalty towards the corporate suite class and corporate donors, and uh, wonders if John Roberts and George Bush with Citizens United have changed the, uh, I guess he would say, the, 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 the values of the Democratic Party on these issues. Wow, that, that that's three shows. It uh, is. I, I clearly think a problem that Democrats got tagged with, and I think somewhat justifiably, was cultural and metropolitan arrogance. And I, I'll give Stan and I talked about this earlier. That that this this, this was a a kind of danger, and I think that a lot of people fell into it. But I. I I understand that. You know, Trump's policies were, were... And by the way, Biden is the most unarrogant man I've ever seen in, my, in politics. Uh, he is the most... He wouldn't know what woke was if you tried to explain it to him. All right? He never uses that bullshit language. All right? He never talks down to state school people. He never... Of course, he went to Delaware, I'm sure... But he, he doesn't do those snarky shit I hear, I've heard through all of my professional career that other people hear too. Those things are not said in a vacuum. And it's built up over a period of time. I, I do think that they are, you know, they, they do. And, and by the way, all of this, this cultural, the, the woke was 90 minutes into the Republican debate. 
this was an idiotic thing with an even more idiotic response. Yeah, it sure was. And I, I think that a lot of Democrats, I think, have learned their lesson. The guy that I've become interested in, I'll just say it out loud, is Chris Murphy. And there's a good piece on this rich man north of Richmond, which was a really cultural touchstone. And, of course, the Republicans tried to use it, and the, the guy who lives in rural Virginia said, that, I, no, I'm not, I don't like those people either. Yeah. We gotta get, he was trying to say we something. we got to get Chris Murphy, Murphy on Murphy. this show. We do. I, 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 when I go through my people of all the talent in the Democratic Party, I, I want to apologize to Chris Murphy. I, he's, a, he's in, the, I think, in the top okay. We're gonna, of talent in the We're going to go for him. I hope you're listening, Senator. John in Chicago says, do you think a possible debate between Governor Newsom, California, and Governor DeSantis of Florida is an insult to President Biden? I, I don't, the White House has privately complained about that possibility, uh, saying that Newsom is really trying to build support for himself for a presidential run. I, I don't get it. I don't get why that bothers uh, Joe Biden. <clears throat> Newsom isn't going to run if Biden is there. Uh, and sure, he is, uh, this is, this is standby uh, material he's building. If Biden gets out, Newsom is getting right in. And I think a debate with uh, Rick DeSantis is probably going to be good for Democrats after watching what what uh, Gavin Newsom uh, did to, did to um, um, uh, Sean Hannity on Fox News. So I don't get why the White House is upset. Uh, I, I completely get why they're upset. Um, first of all, Newsom is going to kick the shit out of Ron DeSantis. <laughs> That's not going Just like he kicked the shit out of Sean Hannity. And, and the one thing is, great a guy as Biden is, and he doesn't know this, and blah, blah, blah. He can't debate. And people are in their great fear is these polls start coming back after Labor Day that are as horrible as the AP University of Chicago poll, and people say, look at that guy. I, I, I completely oh, understand oh, that's, why they're They panicked. know that anyway. It doesn't take a debate for that to, for that, for that I, I, to I come through. But, but if, they do, if, they do the, if they do that, it'll be somewhat of a profile. A, 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 it'll be a high-profile event. And he's going to beat Ron DeSantis' ass so bad he won't know what hit him. He won't know what the fuck hit him. And I, if, if I were in the White House, I would be mortified by this event. I completely understand. The White that. House has a lot more things to be mortified about than a Gavin Newsom and Ron, well, they have and Ron DeSantis debate. The thing that anyway, most, John, the thing that in, you know, our John in Sonoma is a questioner almost every week, and he's good. He says, the future of America and the world rests, James, on the shoulders of millennials. They clearly see the horrors of climate change, abortion denial, and et cetera. What are issues should be the Democrats' top issues as they appeal to millennials? Get someone with some freaking energy on the ticket. You, you, the country goes through these, these things. I mean, look, Johnson was a far more accomplished president than Don Kennedy was. By far, wasn't even close. John Kennedy is more remembered and more consequential because it signaled a, a, a shift in the direction of the United States. You could say the same thing is true about Reagan. You might not like it, but it signaled shifts. Clearly, the same thing's true about Clinton. Same thing was true about Obama. And it, it, it's just the nature, it's human nature. Whether the, the, the new is better than the old, we could argue that forever. The people are looking for something different. I, I just can't. It, it, it's evident to anybody, and it, 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 it's not 
arguable again. You know, you go back and you say, look at everything Lyndon Johnson did. And look at everything that John F. Kennedy didn't do. Yet, for some reason, it was Camelot. I, I don't know. I, it, well, it, James, James I would remind you there also was a little something called the Vietnam War. Uh, which, which I, I, I think, just, I think I, may have I affected Johnson's standing. It, 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 it wouldn't have been a Vietnam War. It still wouldn't have been any comparison. Well, uh, you know, it's that, just that, things that, happen. I'm not sure of that. The Vietnam War okay, certainly sorry. was, hurting, certainly was a huge factor. Anyway, Vincent Garden City says it's this is in keeping with what we're talking about. That, that James said Biden, as you guys say, is a bit of a disadvantage. He's so old. Would it be a good idea if Biden announces simply today, "I'll debate." Uh, any presidential candidate except Trump, who's a liar and has attacked our democracy. Well, that would be stupid. Yeah, sure would be. Because he's going to debate Chris Christie? Yeah. He'd be stupider than that. that too, I mean, I'm, I, I don't mean to... Vince, Vince you're a good listener, but James is right. It's a dumb right. question. I mean, I mean, and, and you can imagine what uh, Trump would say. You know, you're, you're afraid of me. Hey, listen, these questions are good. They're really good every week. I wish we got to more but please send them in uh, again next week and we'll try to get to them then. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Now, following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to recent sponsors in our recent episode show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. Remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.